to Little Yo Pod, the all things Yosemite podcast. I'm your host, Laura Jackson, and this week I'm recording from the central coast of California, where I've been staying with my brother and sister-in-law for a few days. Yes, I escaped the dreary winter of the Pacific Northwest, and not soon enough. And I'm happy to report that I also made a trip to Yosemite at the beginning of my trip and had a beautiful day there. But it really made me realize how much I miss that place and how much I am missing by not living there while keeping this podcast going. I mentioned before in earlier podcasts that I started this project after I took a winter off from Yosemite in 2019, which I'd never done before, with the intention of returning the following spring. But then COVID hit and then I lost my job and any chance of returning at that time. But I kept doing this podcast anyway, somehow convincing myself that my eternal optimism would pay off and things would just go back to normal one day. But I'm beginning to realize that things will probably never go back to normal, at least not how we know it. While I'm hopeful that I will be returning to Yosemite soon, like permanently, not just for a visit, I'm just not sure what it is going to look like from now on. It certainly will not be the experience that I had there before. For one thing... I don't think any of us are going to take anything for granted, especially things like having a job and a place to live. I always thought that I could return to Yosemite no matter what. I knew people who had worked there for over 40 years. Yosemite didn't even close down during the Great Depression or World War II. But things were certainly different during those times as well. Visitation decreased during the Great Depression by a lot, and the Iwani was converted uh, into a convalescent hospital during World War II. And I guess what I wonder is if the people working there at the time had the same question of when things were going to return to normal, because things just don't go back to the way they were following such huge events like a Great Depression or a World War or a global pandemic. So on this week's podcast, I guess I just wanted to ponder that and consider if we even want things to return to normal. Not everything was perfect before the pandemic, and some good things actually came out of this time. So what are some of the things we can take away from this time and adopt for a better future for Yosemite? I've been thinking about this a lot this week. I'm like obsessing over it, actually. I one day actually sat down and I made a list of the last 17 years since I first came to Yosemite to track all of the major climate events during that time. So we started seeing more dry winters than ever before, beginning in the second decade of the 2000s. From 2011 to 2016, California was in the midst of its worst drought in recorded history. I remember that time. It was really scary and it was unsettling. I was working in a small sporting goods store in Yosemite Village during that time, and we had this whiteboard where we would update the weather every day, and after a while, we only had to change the numbers on the dates because every day was sunny all winter long. I hadn't lived in Yosemite long enough to really understand how unusual that was, but there was something in my biology that just knew it wasn't right. Every day that I pulled up the weather report, my body would just tighten with anxiety when I would see the 10-day weather uh, winter forecast, and it would usually read something like sunny, 65 degrees, sunny, 70 degrees. Like, sunny and 70 degrees in the mountains in February? Could that be normal? <laughs> Just for fun, I decided to check on the weather for the last 10 years for Yosemite Valley on the date of February 28th, which is the date that I'm writing this episode. And so what I found was a little confusing. 
So 2010, sunny, 64. 2011, sunny, 59. 2012, rainy, 54. 2013, sunny, 72. 2014, rainy, 61. 2015, partly sunny, 61. 2016, sunny, 73. 2017, sunny, 61. 2018, sunny, 61. 2019, partly sunny, 57. 2020, sunny, 70. 2021, sunny, 62. However, data from 1998 to 2018 from the website climatedata.org reports that the average high for February 28th is 50 degrees, yet none of those dates that I just uh, listed dipped lower than 54 degrees. So what this indicates to me either is that the data is completely wrong or that the average temperature was so low prior to 2010 that it offset the recent high temperatures for an average of 50 degrees. What is funny is that if you look up information for average temperatures in, in, uh, for February in Yosemite Valley, you get that same outdated information. So it's really no wonder that more people aren't concerned about what is happening with the climate. You have to practically be a detective to dig this stuff up. I always wondered how people did not see it happening when I had been reporting sunny days for weeks at a time in Yosemite in the middle of winter. I saw it every day, but the average visitor coming to Yosemite in February may have thought that they just happened to be visiting on a particularly warm and sunny winter day. Sometimes I feel like I'm being gaslighted for the amount of alarm this gives me, and, it, and, and yet it doesn't seem to bother other people that much. Um, but I had this same thought <laughs> as many others when I visited earlier this week and the sun was shining and it was 65 degrees. So I thought like, oh, what a perfect day. Didn't I get lucky? Surely the rest of the month is cold and dreary. But I know that it's not. The cold and dreary typical February weather of Yosemite in the 20th century is almost just a memory at this point. You'll have more sunny days than not sunny days. But you wouldn't know that unless you experienced it every day. So in my little venture into memories of past winters in Yosemite and my discovery of the woefully inaccurate information that exists concerning average weather patterns, I began to think about the summer of 2020, the COVID summer, and some of the things that changed that year. So nothing was normal, as we know. There was no business as usual. The park service and the concessionaires had to figure things out that would still allow for people to visit Yosemite while keeping everyone safe. And what happened as a result of that was the reservation permit for entry. Before the pandemic, the Park Service would rarely, if ever, stop cars from entering Yosemite. Yosemite has 6,500 parking spaces, but on busy days in the summer, particularly over holiday weekends, over 8,000 cars enter the park, ensuring there will be no space for at least 2,000 vehicles and maybe more that must continue circling the valley and idling in hours of gridlock traffic. It is an awful situation that still takes a lot of people by surprise. For years, the Park Service has been asked what they plan to do about the traffic problem, but that would mean denying entry into the park for some people, which goes against everything that public land stands for. How can you tell people they aren't allowed into a national park? It's not only bad for the visitors, it's bad for the gateway communities and the people whose livelihood depend on the high number of visitors to Yosemite. But limiting cars into Yosemite Valley is good for the land. There's no question about it. It causes less pollution, there are less people using facilities, there's less waste, and when there are enough parking spaces, it does not force people to pull off the road to park in the forest. So there is less habitat destruction, and yes, that does happen pretty often. 
During the COVID summer, in the interest of slowing the spread of the disease by limiting the number of visitors, the Park Service implemented the day-use reservation system. So before 2020, anyone could just show up to Yosemite and pay $35 and get into the park any day of the week. But in 2020, visitors had to put a little more thought into planning their trip. Day-use visitors had to go online to reserve a permit good for seven consecutive days from the first day of the reservation, and they actually had to show up on that day to get their permit. Um, So, you know, there were a few barriers there. The cost for the reservation was only $2, uh, hardly enough to discourage anyone wanting to visit. And although I am sure it was not entirely convenient for everyone, the rewards of this system proved to be a huge success in my opinion. I actually used it uh, myself a couple of times this year, and I found it to be simple and very effective. So some of the things I noticed after the reservation system was put in place was that there were no huge lines at the entrance stations, which typically could stretch and be several miles long during busy days. There was ample parking, and I can't say for certain because I wasn't there every day, but I don't think Yosemite ever hit gridlock traffic, at least not how we've seen it before. Now, I couldn't find the number of cars that were allowed in on a day in the summer of 2020, but it could not have exceeded 6,500, and I have a feeling it was maybe around two-thirds or maybe even half of that. Overall, for the inconvenience of planning ahead, I think the visitor experience was greatly enhanced, and the park itself benefited from the lower number of cars in the park. So I guess I have to ask... Why hasn't this ever been tried before? And now that this system is in place, could it be something we can easily return to in the interest of preserving the landscape? Now, I'm not saying this was a perfect situation. For one thing, less cars allowed in per day means less money coming into the park, and that means a lot less people will have jobs. Now, I count myself among those people. I lost my job there, and I knew many people who were desperate for work after losing their jobs when they were told they would be evicted from their homes in Yosemite if they couldn't find work. I understand that you can't have it both ways, jobs for everyone and limited access. I don't know what the solution is for that, except for that there must be a happy medium somewhere. I guess I always thought the traffic situation in Yosemite was such a tragic irony because of what we know is going on with the environment and CO2 in the atmosphere. So studies have shown that transportation by car contributes excess carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which adds to the greenhouse effect and warms the planet at an accelerated rate than would occur naturally over time. So it seems like if we wanted to curb climate change, we should encourage people to use their cars less. But the restrictions of vehicles allowed into the park wasn't enforced to curb carbon emissions, it was to ensure public safety from the spread of the disease. That there were less cars idling in traffic was more of a side effect of the limits imposed by the pandemic. But shouldn't we be focusing on long-term solutions as well as short-term fixes? Am I crazy? (laughs) It just seems like this is such a viable solution, (laughs) at least some variation of it. Now, I know this is a huge controversial topic, but I think about it all the time. And I know climate change is a trigger for many people, especially when it comes to making new policies because it has been so politicized. But there must be a place where we can meet in the middle on this. It doesn't need to be an all or nothing system. I'm just hoping that we can look at the systems that really had a good impact from an otherwise terrible situation and build on those. And I'm hoping we use this opportunity to keep the momentum going and expand on something that could benefit everyone in the long run. Now, necessity is the mother of invention. It comes at us when we least expect it, but great things happen when we are forced to think outside of the box. And I think we can all agree that no one wants to waste another second of their lives sitting in traffic. Mm -hmm. 
What did you think of the reservation system for Yosemite? Did you get a chance to use it in the last year? And if you did, what did you notice when you were visiting the park as a result of limited entry? If you have something you want to say about this system and whether something like this should continue or not, then make your voice heard. I have included a link in today's show notes to contact the National Park Service and let them know what you think. And I encourage everyone to take advantage of your right to voice your opinion. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. If you like this podcast, then please give us a rating and a review, or more importantly, tell your friends about it. Also, if you want to represent Little Yo Pod, I still have uh, stickers available to anyone who would like one. So if you'd like a sticker, go ahead and send me an email to littleyopod at gmail.com with your mailing address, and I will send one out to you as soon as possible, free of charge. Just my little way of saying thanks for listening and supporting this podcast and helping it grow in its early years. This week's listener review comes from a longtime listener who emails me lots of great ideas for shows, but I wanted to uh, talk about a message I received from him recently about the Horsetail Fall episode. So I'm not going to read this one verbatim because it was a personal email, but he did mention something that I think really pertains to today's uh, topic, and it has to do with people trampling the meadows and riverbanks. I did talk about this in the Horsetail Fall episode, but I just had to revisit this because I was just in Yosemite during the Horsetail Fall event last week and oh my gosh you guys it was bananas even with the day use limits and the traffic control I could not believe the number of people there were hundreds maybe even a couple thousand of people that had showed up for it in all of my years in Yosemite I have never seen anything like it honestly and I I guess that just goes to show the power of social media so I did see people with lawn chairs and ice chests in the meadow which really breaks my heart because I hoped we were just kind of beyond that. But it made me realize, again, that our work is never done. As Yosemite enthusiasts and listeners of this podcast, I think we are all stewards of the land, and sometimes that means having awkward conversations or talking about things that are scary. Doing this episode today is actually really freaking me out because I don't want to step on any toes or upset anyone with strong feelings about the topic of climate change. But I think when something needs to be said, even if it's scary, um, that is important to say it. So I guess what I ask of you is that you speak out when you see people doing things that you know they aren't supposed to be doing, like trampling meadows and riverbanks. It's a conversation I hate to have, but I keep having it because I know that it's often a matter of a misunderstanding and it is a great opportunity to bring more people to our side. We're building our army here, our Yosemite army. All right, that is enough soapboxing for today. Thanks for sticking with me if you're still here. Check the show notes for resources for today's episode. I really try to back up everything I say with resources. So if you have questions or want to fact check me, then check out those websites I have listed. Also, that's where you can find the contact information for the Park Service, as well as ways to contact me via email, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And while I'm not super active on social media, you can still follow me on those pages uh, where I will always update uh, as the podcast releases. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. I'm Laura Jackson. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful day. Mm